You guys can go ahead and be seated. All right, I'm scanning the room, and I think we're pretty good on this, but I have put the fair warning out there that today we are talking about sex. And if it makes you nervous that your child is in the room, every time I say the word sex, this is going to be a very uncomfortable service for you. And the reality is I don't feel too bad about doing it because I know that if you watch TV and a beer commercial comes on, it's, the beer commercial is in some way using sex to sell half the time. The movies that you watch, there are entire, entire series of movies that are about sex that so many people have watched. The TV shows always get into the area of sex, the video games that your kids are playing. Parents, if you have not stuck your head inside of even the game Roblox before that seems so basic and elementary, even in there, there are things that teach them and they learn things about sex. If they have access to YouTube, even if it's kids' YouTube, you better believe that that's there as well. And so it shouldn't come as a shock that when we're studying scripture together, there are passages of scripture that talk about sex because in order for the human race to continue onward, sex is kind of critical to that. And I know that you guys know about sex because our nursery is filled with babies, all right? And so it's happening. And, um, and that's a good thing within the context of marriage. Sex is an amazing blessing from God. And the men said, amen, all right? That's right. And it's okay. It's okay to, to say, like, this is a good thing. And it's a weird thing because the culture, like, it's almost like we've handed sex off to the culture and they've degraded it and they've made it a shameful thing. And we've just said, okay, as a church, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to engage in it. But sex is designed by God and it's given a context to occur. And when it occurs within that context, it's an amazing beautiful blessing from God that comes without fear and without shame. And today I'm going to teach on the topic of sex and I'm going to kind of move some th through some things that are going to have implications for those who are not yet married, implications for those who are married. It's going to have some implications for people who are like, I might get married again someday. But I want you to hear my heart's position as I start this. You should not leave here today feeling guilty feeling like you're such a terrible person, you should leave here with a sense of conviction of saying, I know what I need to do now. I know what God is expecting of me and calling me to do. And some of the things that I say might be hard for some people to hear, but I want you to see this is coming from scripture. And so it's not about my opinion on the subject matter. It's about what does God say about this through his scriptures? And that's what we're going to look at today. And really, as we study the passages, I'm going to break out three myths that I believe that need to be deconstructed that so much of our society uh, has believed. But even sociologists are looking at our culture and looking at the way that we treat sex as a culture, and they're throwing off some caution flags. People who are not looking at it really from a moral perspective, they're looking, what happens in our culture when sex is treated so casually? What implications does it have on their psychology and us as a culture? One sociologist was writing about just how flippant our culture is about sexual engagement with each other. And it said most, Mark Regeneris said, most emerging adults will not experience an unintended pregnancy or an STI, but have already and will continue to experience regrettable sex. Sex that when it's finished, when the short relationship is over, there is a sense inside of their heart and their head that I have messed myself up. 
I've hurt myself. I've cheapened myself. I wish I could take back what I did. Sociologists who don't even say that sex outside of marriage is wrong, they're looking at this and they're saying there's consequences beyond unintended children and STIs. There's consequences on the psychology of the people. And I'll tell you, this lines up with the fact that you were created in the image of God and given sex as a gift that was meant to be kept for the marriage bed. And when we misuse sex, there are consequences that I want you to be able to avoid in your life. There are blessings that I want you to be able to experience by understanding what God intends for sex. The Apostle Paul, he was writing a letter to the church in Corinth. It's a city, and the city is a port city. And so people would come and go through it all the time. It's really most comparable in our context to like Vegas. You kind of, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth kind of idea. Like you're passing through, you're anonymous, just have a good time. Their entire temples dedicated to sex and orgies within Corinth. Sex was something that was seen very physical. And in fact, one of, one of the false beliefs that the Apostle Paul deals with a couple times in the New Testament was this idea that was present in Corinth that the body is sinful and it's so sinful that it doesn't even matter what you do with it. Like, it doesn't matter what you choose to do. It doesn't matter who you have sex with. The body is irredeemable. The spirit's redeemable, but not the body. So just use it, abuse it, and lose it was kind of the mentality of physical things. And so the Apostle Paul tries to correct this within the church as he's writing. Because in the same way that our culture is like, sex is just a physical act. I mean, it's kind of like a more intimate, like high five. Like you could just do that with a stranger and then be okay. Like that's not what it's supposed to be, but that's how it was in Corinth. It's largely how it is in our society as well. And so the Paul, so the apostle Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians chapter six, we'll put this up on the screen as I read it, starting at verse 12. And he's writing and you can hear the arguments that he's dealing with in the church. Like there's some quotation marks in this where he's quoting what they've said about this topic. So pay attention to that as we read. It says, you say I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though, quote, I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord and the Lord cares about our bodies. Put verse number 12 back up there for me. I want you to see where it says, and he's quoting them. He says, you say I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. Just leave that on the screen for me for a minute. This is prevalent today as well, where people say grace covers everything. Yes, grace covers everything for those who, who have made Christ the Lord of their life who said, Jesus, I love you, forgive me, be my master, be my Lord, I'm gonna follow your teachings. And in fact, Jesus defines what it means to love him when he says, those who love me, follow my commands. He defines it himself. And God will forgive any sin that we mess up and fall into. But I want to tell you, he is the perfect judge and he knows when we are just playing him and we give him no authority over our life, our decisions, our relationships. And it is a dangerous place to be where you say, I call on the name of the Lord, but I follow none of his commands. And there's a truth. We, God has given us a free will. We can do anything that we want to do. You can choose to use your sexuality however you want, but do not pretend there won't be consequences. 
Listen, there are spiritual consequences. There are emotional consequences. There are psychological consequences. There are physical consequences. You know, when you look at an uncommitted relationship or a flippant view of sex versus a committed, only within the confines of marriage view of sex, there, there's just, there's different consequences to it. When, you, when you're sleeping with different people and you know the person you're sleeping with has been sleeping with different people, there's a serious fear of what happens if I get a sexually transmitted disease. And that's a natural fear in life. When you're in a committed marriage relationship where you guys have waited until marriage, when you enter into that, there's no fear of that. There's no concern in the back of your mind. Let let, let me make sure we we know what we're talking about. The the, the myth that I want to start with as we look at this passage is myth number one. is the myth that sex is just physical. It's not just physical. There's physical ramifications like sexually transmitted disease when, when, when we're promiscuous outside of marriage. But it's not just physical, it's emotional. Some people, well, sex is not that big of a deal. Like it really shouldn't get into your feelings all that much. Listen, you would never say that to someone who is a victim of some sort of sexual assault. You would never say this shouldn't affect your emotions. If someone is the victim of sexual assault, there is a difficult roadmap to healing. There, there is counseling, there is time, there, there's the right friends around, there's, there's people praying for them. Like that is a difficult road of recovery and you would never approach that person and just say, sex is just physical. But we try to justify in our mind the behavior outside of marriage and we just try to, to simplify it. But listen, it affects your emotions. Not just does it affect your emotions, the, the more sexual activity that you have outside of marriage. I mean, you, you can see the graphs. When, as your partner count goes up, the likelihood of a marriage that lasts goes down. It affects your ability to bond with people. It affects your psychological view of yourself. When enough people have walked away from you after that, there, there's this psychological and it shouldn't be there. Because you have worth. You were created in the image of God. But there is a psychological question of, am I good enough for anyone? Everyone keeps leaving. And all of these, these things are destructive and they, they all kind of get built around this concept that, that sex is just this, this physical thing. Uh, one of the other things that we see in our culture, you'll see a girl walk by a group of guys and they'll be like, did you see that? Did you see that booty? Did you see that shape? Did you see those? You mean that person? That human? That, that creature that was created in the image of God? People start to become objects that are used instead of people who have value. And when sex is diminished down to just a physical act, it's just about what, what I get from them rather than this personal, intimate, lifelong commitment to each other. It cheapens what sex is. The church doesn't make sex guilty or degraded. The the church lifts up. This is what sex is supposed to be. It's supposed to be on this pedestal where you have this one special relationship with one person for your whole life. And the culture pulls it down from there and just says, it's just a physical act. Who cares? Well, it's a physical act that has huge implications, not just on your psychology, not just on your emotions, not just the possibility of sexual transmitted disease, but it ends up having children who are born into broken situations that never had a chance. This is another reality. One of the 
Statistics that I looked up uh, about fatherless homes, it actually comes from Fulton County, um, Georgia, where it, it, it surveyed the children, the teenagers that were in juvenile detention, and 85% of them came from broken homes. 85% of the kids who are in juvenile detention, 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from broken homes. When you look at the statistics uh, of children and young people who abuse drugs, who become sexually violent criminals, it's 80% of them come from fatherless homes. There are implications for us as a society as sexual promiscuousness rises, promiscuity rises, so does crime. It affects us in lots of different ways. And when we allow ourselves to be engaged in a relationship outside of marriage, we are putting ourselves and our potential children in a position of risk. And all of those things are solved by saying, this belongs in a committed lifelong relationship. Because you know what the reality is? It's not just single people who get pregnant on accident. Lots of married couples were like, we weren't trying, we were preventing and a kid popped up. It happens a lot. But the difference is that when you get pregnant as a married person, you don't have to ask the question of, will this person stay? Will she let me have access to the kids if if this goes different? Like, Like those questions don't get asked. And sex has all these implications for your life and potentially for the future life of even your children. Uh, The Apostle Paul, as he's writing, and he says, you know, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. Listen, can you be a Christian and be sexually active outside of marriage? Yeah, sure, For, for, for probably a while, but there's only so long that you can ignore the voice of God before you really just, I think, begin to push him out of your life. But when you get to the point where, you know, it says in the passage, we must not become a slave to anything, where you feel like you don't have a choice anymore, that is a huge danger sign for you. That, that is a huge spiritual health concern for you, where you feel like, I just don't have a choice, like I just always fall into this. That's something you need to fix. In, in verse 13, they were saying, you know, foods for the stomach, like Paul, it, it's just sex. Like if you're hungry, you eat. If you want sex, you go and you find it. It's not a big deal. And the apostle Paul clarifies the, the stomach was made for food, but the body was not made for sexual immorality. It doesn't just say sexual intercourse. It says sexual immorality, any kind of sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship. And he says, the Lord cares about our bodies. Why does he care about our bodies? because he cares about your minds, because he cares about your heart, because he cares about your soul, because he cares about your children, because he cares about your legacy, because he cares about your neighbor. And all of those things are affected when we don't follow God's ways on this. The body was made for the Lord and the Lord cares about our bodies. And so we can't pretend that it's just physical. In verse 15, he goes on to say, and you can put this up on the screen. He says, don't you realize that your bodies are actually part of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. That was literally what was happening. They they, they were going and they were engaging with prostitutes. And the apostle Paul is writing to the people in the church. And he's saying, we need to clear this up. That's not how it should go. If you think having sex with strangers is just something that happened in this generation, even in the book of Proverbs, they were dealing with that. 
But he's writing and he says, this isn't the right way. This is, don't you recognize that once you're in Christ, you are part of the body of Christ. And when you take Christ and you join him in an act like that, you, you're joining Christ into that. Like, don't you understand what you represent? You're a light. You're supposed to be like a city on a hill that the light that radiates from you cannot be hidden. You cannot live like the rest of the culture. You should not. You miss out on blessings when you do. Sex is supposed to unite two people into one. He says, don't be joined with just anybody. You need to save this as something that unites and weaves two lives into one. It's a special part of a relationship that only belongs to you and only belongs to her. But the question gets asked, well, you know what? If we don't have sex, and this is myth number two, how will we know if we have the right chemistry? Like, I don't want to get into, you know, I don't want to buy the cow if I don't like the milk. Like, I've got to test it out. Don't compare your wife to a cow, ever. But this is the reality. Commitment fuels chemistry. It's not just a physical thing. And that is really a lie that I think men fall into more. Uh, women have a better understanding of this usually, that a sexual relationship is so much more than just the physical. This is, this is why she's willing to date someone like you, someone who looks like you or me, right? It's more than just physical for them. They get that. Chemistry, it's really fueled by commitment. And, and the longer that you're, you're with someone, the deeper that chemistry gets, the wider that it gets. It's funny, when I was, um, T and I, my wife T and I, we got married when we were pretty young. I was 22 and she was still 20 when we got married. And I didn't grow up in the church really, and I didn't follow Christ until I was 17. But when Christ got a hold of my heart, like I wanted to give him all of my life. And so I made a decision before I ever met Tia, but I told her right up front as we started dating, I have a ridiculously strong line around my sexual boundaries because I've made mistakes in the past and I know where my tipping point is, where I lose control. And so I have a really strong line. And so the next woman that I kiss is going to be on my wedding day when the pastor says that I'm allowed to kiss her. And you don't have to hold that line. I'm not saying that's right for everyone. I'm just saying that's what I had to do because I knew myself. And, and so we waited while we were dating. And so the honeymoon was great. All right. Like we were excited for that day. I was 22. She was 20. I still had a six pack back then. Like we were in great shape. Like life was good week-long honeymoon, and we come back, and one of my friends who is a youth pastor, he's like 38, he's a little, that is so much older then than it is now to me, 38, but he was a little bit older, a little bit rounder, and he came and put his arm around me, he's like, was honeymoon good? And I was like, yeah, it was real good. And he was like, don't worry, it's going to get better than what it is now. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you, like, you versus, like, me and her, like, you can't improve on what that was. Like, that was perfect. Can I tell you, it gets a lot better than what it was earlier. Like, the more that you know each other and the more that you love each other, and as you have decades, as you have children, as you have to fight for your marriage in whole new kinds of ways, as you get angry at each other and then you get to make up with each other, it just, it's like the fire can just grow and grow and grow and build. And the deeper that commitment, the deeper the chemistry becomes. And if you believe the lie that the only way that you'll know if you'll really be compatible is if you test it out, you have believed an absolute misconception about the way that the sexual relationship in marriage works. 
Hebrews 13, verse four. I don't have this one to put on the screen, uh, but Hebrews 13, four, it says, Mary, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexual, sexually immoral. Look, there, there's a lot of things that don't get caught up on the judgment part of that. There's a lot of things that we could fall under judgment for and Christ will handle those things. But I want you to see the straightforward instructions of keeping the marriage bed pure. As you lead up to that part of your life, you are building a testimony and a witness that exists whether you recognize it does or not. And this is how that will play out. And hear this, if you have been doing things in a way that you know that you should not, no matter where you are at in the process, you have the opportunity to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna change direction and I'm gonna do this from God's way on the way out. This isn't about guilt, but this is about reality. And I want you to know the recognition exists and single people have this on your mind. If you have a relationship where you guys are passionately in love with each other and, and, and anyone would say, it makes sense that you guys cross the line. Like other people would even justify it with you. But when it gets hot and heavy and he's ready to get his hands on you and he stops and he says, no, I wanna honor God. And he backs off. And that is part of the testimony leading up to your marriage. Once you're married and he has to go away on a trip and he's gone overnight staying at a hotel by himself, you worry a whole lot less. If you know that he's first concerned with what God wants, not what culture justifies, you can't help but say, I can trust him more easily. But if you know in your mind, when no one's looking, he's willing to cross those lines, you know in your mind that when no one's looking, he's willing to cross those lines. So no matter where you are in your relationship and your approach to marriage, it's always the right time to say, you know what? In the time that I have left, I'm gonna show you that you can trust me before God. As I said here, and young people, single people, this is something that you want to instill in the person that you eventually date and marry, that you, say, you teach them, you can trust me. I love you so much. I want you so much. I would love to cross these lines so much. But because I intend on spending my whole life with you, you're gonna know before we get to the wedding day that you can trust me for your whole life long. I don't, I don't need this now to know that it's gonna be connected. Because th this is the, the third piece, the third myth. Um, the, the myth that's prevailed in our culture is that sex is not meaningful. It's not a big deal if you do it. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It's a testimony that you write. It's something your kids will ask you about one day, especially if you raise them in church. If you plan on raising your kids up in church, the question's gonna come, did you and dad wait till you were married to have sex? And then you're gonna have to either tell them the truth or tell them a lie. And if you want your kid to, to have that kind of testimony where, where they, they wait until the right time in their life, you need to exemplify that no matter what point in the story it is for you. Because sex is a powerful thing. Proverbs chapter 15, verses 15 through 19. I love this passage. This passage is gonna start off with so much illustration. At first, you're probably gonna be like, Paul, what is this passage even talking about? Cisterns and drinking water, all right? When it gets to the end, I mean, it talks about deer and stuff like that in it. And I understand some of the il illustrations 
might not be current to our generation, even though thirsty is used again in this context. But yeah, some of the younger people know. But the, the end of the passage, it's going to use some terminology that you're like, okay, that's absolutely talking about sex. So, so let, let, let's go. Uh, Proverbs 15, verse, starting at verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of waters, water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. You were probably thinking, okay, is this talking about sex? Okay, wife of the youth, that sounds, he's going to clarify. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. This is a description of marriage that I love, especially the way that it ends. That, that description of be satisfied in her breast, be intoxicated in her love. Sex is a gift for marriage from God. And our passions should be for the person that God has given us in a very intense way. Now, The picture is given that we should be satisfied from our own cistern at the beginning. It, it deals with even at this time, people were, ha- were getting physically involved with strangers. And it deals with that as well. And it says the answer to that is that you should be finding satisfaction in this one person alone. Now, I might mostly speak to men because that's where most of my experience in life comes from. Um, And so men, directly to you, your satisfaction for sexual desire should be met in your spouse alone. What you let your eyes rest on, what you look at, the media that you consume, it matters. One of the areas of sexuality in our culture, especially, you know, the, the, the myth that sex is not meaningful, it is. And one of the ways that it's described as not mean, meaningful in our culture is the use of pornography. And what you set your eyes upon matters because it begins to shape the way that you think your spouse should be. Not only that, it steals from your spouse an energy, an emotional energy that should be welling up inside of you to chase her around the house and the world. All right? There is a truth and and there's a saying that um, no one cleans a house faster than a man who has a prize waiting in his bedroom. The women laugh because they've seen it happen in their life. When a man begins to find sexual satisfaction either online or in another person, there's an energy to pursue his wife's needs, concerns, and anxieties that disappears from the relationship. It often kind of happens in a spiral, almost like, like, like a hurricane kind of builds. It's like it, our, our relationships will have a momentum to them that is either everything is getting better and hotter and, and more fun and more passionate, or it's like it's a chasm that just grows and grows and grows. There can be something that happens that she gets upset about. 
And, and he wants a need to be met in her, and then it's not met. And so that he pulls away, and he handles his sexual needs by himself. And since that's met, he doesn't have the energy to really be concerned about what she's concerned with. And so he's not doing any of the things that she cares about. And so she wants to be less and less physically intimate with him. And the chasm just grows and grows and grows and grows apart. And he's finding no satisfaction in her. She's finding no satisfaction in him. And it gets worse and worse until they're like, I don't even know you anymore. I don't think I like you anymore. Why are we even living in the same house? And it builds like momentum. And the desire that wells up in a man is put there so that there is the energy and the heart to say, I want to make sure that everything that she has is met because I want her to meet my needs. And it all works together. When sex is good in a relationship, the guy is like, I will spend the money on the hotel. I will plan the date. I will buy the roses. I will give her the words. I will do the dishes. I'll put the kids to bed. Like if there's the prize at the finish line and everything works together as it should, it builds the marriage up. And, and I love the way that it describes it, that this is what scripture says, men, this is how you should feel about her. You should be intoxicated with her love. It's like I drink of it and I want more of it and it makes me feel crazy. That's the kind of passion that God wants you to have for each other. Sex is not a device of Satan. Like sex is the design of God. And it's meant for procreation and it's meant for fun and it's meant for relationship building within the context of a marriage. But all of this concept is really built around the key passage in Ephesians 5.21 that we looked at last week that, that begins to describe the, the relationship. The whole section does, but really, really the key one was, was submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ. Submit your needs to one another out of your reverence for Christ. Maybe you're in the situation where you're married and you're like, the chasm has been growing apart from each other. It's bad right now. And I don't want to do my part because they're not doing their part. And so we're both going to act like toddlers. You need to not do 50%, but you need to do 100%. And out of reverence and worship for Christ, you're going to love that other person who's acting like a toddler. And you're going to start to close the gap as much as you can. Now, what I am not saying is that if your husband is acting like an idiot, that you should immediately just rekindle all the physical intimacy when there is no emotional intimacy. That is not what I'm saying. But I'm saying you need to take some steps to begin to close the gap no matter which side of the chasm you're on. Men, your calling is the highest. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is your calling in a marriage. And so before any of your needs are met, you are expected to die for her. Your desires, your needs, your preferences, they die to serve her. You're, you're right to sit down on the couch and have a beer after a long day's work because you're exhausted and tired and you shouldn't have to come home and help with the kids or clean the house or fill in the blank. That dies in service to her. And once those things get ordered, then the thing that you look forward to maybe the most in your marriage, that will get fixed. 
But you've got to serve, you've got to serve, you've got to serve. Listen to this. This is a passage that maybe you didn't know was in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. Many will see this as good news. Here's the instructions for sex in Scripture as far as frequency. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. The only thing that should be interrupting your sex life is your prayer life. That's pretty good news for most of us. All right? It's supposed to be part of who you are. It's part of God's design for marriage. But it is like the warning light on the dashboard that goes off before the car breaks down. And if it's been a long time since there was sexual intimacy in your marriage relationship, I want to say it's a meaningful thing that your, your marriage life has been deprived of it. It shouldn't be deprived of it. But sex isn't the issue. Sex is the indicator. There's other things that need to be fixed. And husbands, as we love our wives like Christ loved the church, and we take care of her, and we don't fulfill our needs in anything else, we don't allow our eyes to find satisfaction in anyone else. She is our standard of beauty. She is the object of our affection. We are drunk on her love. Those pieces will line up. Band, if you guys will come up, I'm going to begin to close this out. And so I have homework for you guys. Last week had homework. I hope you did it. If you didn't, you'll get partial credit if you get it done this week. All right? Last week, you were supposed to take your spouse out on a date and ask the question, what are your hopes and dreams for the next five years of our life? Thursday night, did my homework with my wife. There's... We've done this before. There's always new things that I'm like, I didn't know that was on your heart. I didn't know that was in your head. I'm so glad I know now because I want to help push and make that dream come true. That was last week. If you haven't done it yet, get it done. This week, some of you guys are like, oh, the homework this week's going to be great. It's not what you think. <laughs> Here's the homework. Every day for seven days, ask your spouse each morning, what can I do today to make your day better? Some of you guys are like, what does that have to do with sex, Paul? The women are like, that has everything to do with sex. Ask your spouse each morning, what can I do today to make your day better? What can you do to serve? And maybe it's something as simple as she needs you to do a load of dishes today or fold a basket of laundry. I hate folding laundry. Serve your spouse. They might say, I want you to pray with me today, or I want you to read scripture with me today, or I want you to make that phone call that needs to be made. I don't know what it'll be, but the goal of it is that we want to improve communication because communication is part of intimacy. We want to rebuild trust. We want to rebuild heart connection, get things healthy enough under the hood that sex can play the role that it's supposed to play in your marriage but we can't jump straight to that. We, we have to say, okay, how do I serve? How do I reconnect? So that's your homework for this week. Let me pray for you. Father, I know that there are a lot of different feelings that are being experienced right now. 
And we pray against guilt. We pray for only conviction and motivation and direction to walk in your ways. I pray that true intimacy and love would be experienced within the lives of people who are dating, within the lives of people who are engaged, and within the lives of people who are married. That, that they would, in their season, walk in a way that honors you so that they can build the love story that you desire for them. That they would have trust, that they would have joy, that they would have intimacy, that there would be no fear, but they would experience the closest connection that they've ever experienced with a person through the marriage relationship the way that you designed it. So help us to take the steps out of reverence for you that we need to take in our marriage to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.